In April uh, 17th, 1521, that's the year, 1521, the Diet of Worms was held. And kids, that's not eating worms to lose weight, okay? That's not what that means. Uh, instead, it was a deliberate meeting in history called at the location of Worms, uh, Germany. And uh, the point of the meeting, as called by the Roman emperor at that time, Charles V himself, um, was a few things that they met for, but the main reason was to call a man named Martin Luther to recant, uh, that is to give up, to stop believing, stop teaching something that he had been teaching, to denounce his beliefs. Those beliefs were that a man or a woman who trusts in Christ for salvation is justified in that salvation by faith alone. Not through works like indulgences and other things taught by the Roman Catholic Church in that time. We have to quote him as he heads into the meeting. He's determined. Luther, as he went into the meeting, was determined and courageous. And he says, writing about that He said, this will be my uh, recantation. That is, this will be my repentance at Worms. Before I said, the Pope is the vicar of Christ. Now I declare that the Pope is the opponent of Christ and the apostle of the devil. That's some courage if he's planning to go into a meeting of people that have greater authority than him in a lot of ways and are not going to like such a thing. He also wrote, unless I'm restrained by force or the emperor rescinds his invitation, I will enter worms, that's where the meeting was, under the banner of Christ against the gates of hell. (laughs) Get him, Martin, right? He's going in there like he's going to war, courageously ready to stand and say that the Bible teaches faith alone in Christ is what justifies a man or a woman. Most famously, the uh, diet actually uh, shocked Luther a little bit because the emperor was in attendance himself, something that he maybe thought would happen but didn't think would happen. Yet he remained steadfast after taking a full night and a day to really think through his stance. The next day, April the 18th of 1521, After trying to make his case in a lot of ways in Latin and in uh, the tongue there that everyone could understand, they finally put the question to Martin Luther and they said, you know, Luther, you must give a simple, clear, and proper answer to the question. Will you recant? Remember, that means will you give up these convictions or not? And famously, this was Martin's reply, quote, unless I can be instructed and convinced with evidence from the Holy Scriptures or with open, clear, and distinct grounds and reasoning, and my conscience is captive to the word of God, then I cannot and will not recant, because it is neither safe nor wise to act against conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. And God did help him. Amen? (laughs) God did help him and his Reformation brothers who joined him after. And he helps you and I now. If we labor to preach and understand the true gospel and to leave the saving, justifying faith up to God Almighty, and, 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 and this is the help God gave, right? I mean, praise the Lord that we can understand the gospel as preached from the scriptures to God's glory alone in Christ alone for eternal life. This is why we've gathered this morning. If you're here not a Christian... 
You need to know at the offset of, of trying to understand God's will in this sermon today with what we're about to get into. You need to hear right at the beginning that God can justify, that is, God can make a legal declaration that you can be forgiven of your sins by you having faith in Christ. That's good news. It's good news. Praise God for such courageous men. Um, praise God that men uh, were courageous in the Reformation. Many people would have uh, warned against Luther going to Worms, and some did. After Worms, many would work hard to keep him hidden from the Roman Catholic forces uh, because the, the, church, uh, the Roman Catholic Church in that time wanted to uh, burn him at the stake for what he believed. He was determined, he was courageous in pursuing God's will uh, for his life, even if it meant losing his life. Now, in that sense, Luther was a lot like the Apostle Paul in our text that you just heard read to you today. I think when you read this text, if you're uh, any kind of committed Christian, you want to be like Paul and like Martin Luther, right? You want to be like these examples from church history that we have. You want to be courageous. You want to be confident that you are doing God's will and that you know God's will and that you understand God's will. You rarely uh, should meet a Christian if you ask a Christian, somebody says they're a Christian, and you ask them, do you want to do God's will in your life? I doubt you'll ever hear a Christian say no. <laughs> I mean, very simply, we want to be confident that we're doing God's will. But how? How can you be sure of God's will and so courageous about it? Well, this story, like I told you, of Martin Luther, I've introed with, it stands in the tradition of, of a story that we're beholding these weeks in Scripture. So in Acts now, we are journeying with the Apostle Paul who is determined uh, to courageously go to Jerusalem, a place that uh, he's bound by the Spirit to visit, and yet that same Spirit has testified that he will go to suffer, possibly die. What gives a man such courage? In our text, there's attempts by well-meaning friends and brothers and sisters in Christ to thwart the Apostle Paul on his uh, committed idea to get to Jerusalem to testify to the Lord. We're going to journey with him today and Luke as, as we encounter all these opportunities with Paul to get off of that clear way into God's will and to uh, possibly go off of that path. There are attempts in our text that thwart Paul or at least try, and they're going to serve as our outline today. So if you're taking notes, our first point is going to be God's people and God's will. They all end in God's will. God's people and God's will is what we'll see first. And then we'll see a second thwart that happens, God's prophets and God's will. And then thirdly, we're going to see God-given partners and God's will. So God's people, uh, God's prophets, and then God-given partners and God's will. Let's be clear about something this morning first before we talk about God's people and God's will in verses one through six, okay? Um, if you are here asking the question, what is God's will for my life? If you're asking that, um, you know, there are some things that we can speak about certainly that are not open for debate um, or discussion like Paul's plans are going to be in our text. You see, in our text, all three points, Paul's plans are open for discussion. There are some other things in Scripture that, let me say again, you know, God's will for your life can be known. And you don't need debate or questions or conversations or should you ask. There are some things God has made very plain. Let me give you three of them. Uh, the three, actually, the three that, that you find in the New Testament. First Thessalonians 4.3, you should write that down. For this is the will of God. 
So what's God's will for my life? This is the will of God. Your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So if you know God and you're wanting to follow him, knowing him in Christ, what is God's will for you? Be sanctified. Pursue holiness, right? Be sexually pure. Love God with your body. Here's another. A few, actually. 1 Thessalonians 5. The Thessalonians, they were ready to just hear Paul be like, hey, here's, my, here's God's will. <laughs> 1 Thessalonians 5.16. Rejoice always. So be joyful. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And beloved, if you're a Christian here today, let me tell you, that's God's will for your life. You need to be joyful always. You need to pray. That means without ceasing means all the, if you're worrying, you should be praying. And you need to give thanks in everything. That's God's will for your life. So write that one down, right? Thirdly, and lastly, 1 Peter. So Peter weighs in. Uh, 1 Peter 2.15. For this is the will of God. Isn't that helpful? This is the will of God. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Boy, I like this one. But listen, this is God's will for your life. Go tell ignorant people that are foolish and not trusting in God that they're ignorant and foolish for not trusting in God and that they should turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the will of God. Do good. Do good. Right? So go share the gospel. Do good. Relieve burdens. Why? So you can silence people that naysay about Jesus. So if you're here this morning and you're confused, don't be. These are clear. You should do these. They're non-negotiable. You always should be trying to grow in doing these. Now, to our sermon. There are 59 other references in the New Testament to doing, understanding, or being in God's will that have no specific task linked to them like these I just gave you. I want you to think about that. Three that tell us, this is God's will, do this. And 59 references here or there to God's will, which means we have a lot of freedom if we are in Christ. And so we need to think as Christians. And I think Acts is trying to, for the rest of this time, show you close up, in-depth detail, one man, Paul, right, an apostle, and his trying to live and give his life to the will of God entirely. That's the rest of the book. And it focuses on that because you need such understandings as you try to venture in following Christ yourself. Even though we have a lot of freedom, we need to be slow to certainty. Maybe just think about that as a Christian all the time. If you're certain about something, be a little bit slower. Be slow to certainty and be open to be corrected. Be ready to listen to people in your life that God has put there. That's the wonderful example that Paul gets here in the text. So let's jump in. First point, God's people and God's will. Verses one through six. Now, verses one through four, as you heard, it sets the scene for us to really show God's people um, you know, trying to change God's will for Paul. That's really what's happening in these six verses. Here's the context. The context is that after Paul and Luke, they've left uh, visiting the Ephesian elders in Miletus. And just check out two weeks ago, Blake's sermon on this, and you'll, you'll get that very clearly. And, they, and the scene here is they're now traveling by sea and they're using Roman transportation. So uh, they, they start on small boats, clearly, in this journey because they're going kind of day by day on the coast. And so they pop into coast and they pop into these next towns and then eventually they get on this bigger boat. It takes them on open water all the way to the Phoenician area and Tyre. Now, remember some details here so you understand the story, especially if you haven't been with us. Paul, Luke, and the gang that are with them, they have a lot of money with them. 
um, because they're desiring to get to Jerusalem so that they can give this as a gift from the, the Gentile churches that have been reached for Christ. And they want to give that gift to the saints that are in Jerusalem, which is a still a very heavily Jewish identity-driven church. And so they want to bring these gifts and testify to what God has done. And so they're on their way to Jerusalem. There's not much stopping because Paul wants to get there by the Feast of Pentecost. So he's in a rush. And we learned that in the previous text. Luke records the first stop at Coast. I think it's funny because uh, that city was the center of medical research and science in that day. So you ever heard of, uh, you know, today if a doctor becomes a doctor, and they're really whacked out oaths now, but for the most part, all of the conservative schools, they make them take the Hippocratic Oath. And what is the Hippocratic Oath? It is an oath that says, I'm going to be like above board, right? I'm going to do a great job of seeking health and, and prosperity. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to try to give my life to others. Well, Hippocratic Oath is uh, named after Hippocrates. And where was he from? Kos, you guessed it. Now, here's why I bring that up. Luke, we learn in Colossians, was a physician. If anybody probably wanted to stop over in the city of Kos and talk about the latest peer-reviewed journal articles on vaccines, it would have been Luke, right? He's like, just kidding, they didn't have vaccines yet. But, but I'm saying like, you know, it, it would have been Luke and guess what? No, no, why? Because Paul is determined, Paul is on mission, Paul is heading there to get to where he's getting. We saw some other things in the weeks previous, but you just need to make note. Look, I bring this up to show you, Paul is resolved uh, to do what he thinks is clearly God's will for him. Big boat, lands in Tyre, that is about 306 miles north of Jerusalem, where they need to be. Um, they must have made some good time because clearly, uh, you know, out on the open sea, they probably caught the good winds and, and got ahead and Paul has time. And so we see in the text that he spends time with these believers. So there's your context. Now, while they wait, I want you to look at what they do in the first part of verse four again. You have it there? It says, having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. Beloved, don't rush past this. From this point on in the text, I'm going to present what I think is the right way to understand God's will for Paul. There are some other views I do want to talk about, but, but before we look at the first attempt in our text about these people, uh, this, this church entire trying to change Paul's mind, I want you to consider the importance of what just happened there in the beginning of verse four, and I do want you to apply it to yourself. Paul and Luke, they find fellow believers to fellowship with. And then that is the context for conversations concerning God's will for their lives. And you cannot skip this. I get so frustrated when Christians seek to learn God's will for their life outside of the church that God has given them because that church, if it's a good church, is supposed to be upholding the word of God to them. God has designed it to where, look, these people that are baptized and are doing what I've commanded them to do, I've given them my word and they are to propagate it. So if a Christian is thinking, how do I know God's will for my life? And they're not plugging in somewhere, regularly hearing God's word taught and spending time around that word together, then why in the world are they even asking that question? That's how I feel. But you know what? It's also what the text says, right? These guys show up. They seek out the disciples, Paul, the apostle, is giving us an example here to fellowship with other believers. Let that flavor your discernment. I'm not sorry to tell you this morning, if you're a follower of Christ, that you will almost never find God's will for your life outside of the things God has given you, like his word himself and his people. You will not, likely. Now, I say almost never because God is sovereign over everything. 
He really is. And we, you know, I'm including me here, brothers and sisters, we sometimes use our ignorance or our our dumb bad choices. Uh, We choose those things and God still works those together to accomplish his will for our life. Amen? I mean, I hope you feel the weight of that because, you know, but here's the thing. You don't want that. (laughs) You don't want that. Examples of this approach and learning God's will abound in Christian communities today. Uh, Maybe not communities, but certainly Christian social media Right? I mean, you hear things like, God gave me this sign. I'm an Enneagram 7, and that must mean this about, you know, God's will. And I mean, the list goes on and on, right? I was in this situation, and I saw this thing, and this experience, surely that's the voice of God. We get silly. People say things like, I clear my mind, even put away my Bible, and let the Spirit lead me. Like, that is poppycock. That is, just, that is not Christianity 101. It's not in any of this Bible you're going to read. When Christians need to know God's will, they need to be around God and his word. They need to be around God's people. If you employ the tactics I just gave, there's many more. Here's what you're doing. You're putting sugar into the gas tank of your life in Christ. And what I've found is I've tried to counsel people, or let me tell you from testimony, in seasons of my life where I was seeking God's will outside of seeking it in the fellowship of saints and under God's word, what ends up happening is you cannot live that way Uh, as a believer for long. Not only do you start to lose what is God's will for your life, your personal prayers begin to weaken. You start to lose faith. You lose hope. And before you know it, if you're only dependent on that cheap kind of gasoline-driven, you know, idea, uh, then you have whole churches that talk for hours about deconstruction, right? They talk about walking away. See, some people want to discern God's will for their life, and they pursue those cheap, you know, avenues in the name of religion, and it leads them to a place where they're not even seeking God's will anymore. Now they're just figuring out, was I ever seeking God? This is the danger. Don't go this way. Okay, don't go this way. Go the way of the apostle. Get believers in your life. Study the Bible. Learn together what is God's will for you. Now, as they do that, I want you to see, now that we've got that out of the way, it is still tough to know God's will. So even in the context of submitting yourself to the word of God and the church and people in your life, It's still hard. Notice that the text says, the rest of that verse, verse four, through the spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. (laughs) I'm gonna be frank with you today. As a preacher, I wish that the word spirit was not there sometimes, especially in my prep this week. I'm glad it's there, Lord, because now we have to make a decision about something. Okay, you may need to turn your pages to believe me here. You see, in Acts 9, when Paul was converted, the spirit was already preserving through Luke the idea that Paul was going to have to suffer for Jesus and his namesake. At his conversion, Ananias comes and says, I've appointed for him to be the apostle of the Gentiles, but I will to show him how much he must suffer for my namesake. So even at his conversion, God has been making it very clear to Paul. And in Acts 19, 21, you can just turn a page over and see that. Before this, Paul says that it is in the spirit that he is resolved to go to Jerusalem. So the decision to go to Jerusalem is Paul's resolved in the spirit. And it's the same explanation as these believers in Tyre. Okay, and in Acts 20, if you remember from our brother's sermon uh, two weeks ago, Acts 20, 22, it is clear that the spirit is not only leading Paul, it's constraining him to go. Listen to Acts 20, 22. You can read it there. Now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem. Paul says, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction awaits me. Now, 
question of the text. Why would the Spirit be telling Paul something different now through these believers gathered in Tyre? Some, uh, though few, who are Greek scholars, they do think that this warning from these believers, they believe it's the beginning of the record of what they call Paul's flaw or uh, Paul's great mistake. And in other words, like all the great men in the Bible, Paul is no different, uh, that he misses the mark sometimes. So there are some that believe that this is the beginning of recording something like the, the counts of Abraham. You know, Abraham lies about his wife. Moses strikes the rock of, in, in the land disobediently. David commits adultery and murder. John the Baptist doubts Christ. On and on it goes that the Bible does show that great men of God, they have these you know, terrible weaknesses, right? And it gets them off of God's will for their life. Right? And then listen, for me, as, as somebody preaching you today, if I'm honest, I like this view more. <laughs> because when it comes to doing God's will, it's amazing uh, to think that God will work even when you make mistakes. Amen? Or oh me, right? He does. And that's true. So I like this view personally, but I don't believe it biblically. If you can do that. And I think you can. <laughs> I like it, but I don't believe it biblically. If we look carefully in this text, the Spirit as it's reported through these people, it isn't saying anything different that is recorded by these Christians. Did you notice that? Right? And we don't even get what the Spirit said explicitly, except that they're just warning Paul uh, to not go, likely saying the same thing's going to happen. So what's happening here? These people of God entire are letting their love for Paul, I think, cloud their counsel for him. He's spinning up. He's just met them. He never went there, uh, so we can tell in the journeys. If he has, it's been in passing. The, the gospel came to them at the dispersion up to this area and when, when, when all the persecution happened. And so Paul is, in one sense, kind of meeting God's people. That's why point one, right? God's people and God's will. He's meeting them, and in seven days, they develop this deep love for one another. But look, Luke records very little about the Spirit speaking this counsel, and look what he records more. Okay, look at the next verses when it came to an end. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. Now listen to this. And they all, here's your details, with wives and children accompanied us until we were outside the city. So they went past the city gates. And kneeling down on the beach, these people went all the way to the beach. We prayed and said farewell to one another. You can hear the tears being wiped, right? And the sniffly noses. They went on board the ship. And then we went on board the ship and then they returned home. Brothers and sisters, do you feel the love in that? That's Luke's intent. Do you see the hard goodbye that this is? You, you hear the tears? I mean, they even got the women and the babies out there crying, saying, Paul, like, don't do this, right? Like, we, we want to see you again. I mean, they take time in the sand to pray. It's like a sanctified rom-com airport scene. You know what I mean? It's just like holy though. It's like, it's like you know, end of the movie here for them. It's like, no, no, don't leave. Like, like I, we, we love you, brother. Like, we don't want what's gonna happen to you to happen. I think that this is a temptation to thwart Paul, even though it's the best kind. <laughs> Quick takeaway, love your fellow saints. Love them well. But don't let love triumph when it's your love. Let it be the Lord's love that triumphs. There is a way to love someone so much and to care about them that you would dismiss suffering God has for them. And it would be an error. And I think that's what this text is trying to recover here. I think this text is trying to show us that there is a way to love someone so much that you actually let that love get in the way of any discernment that you would need to have to help them along in their journey. 
Paul's gonna end our passage saying things like, why are you making me weep about this? Now, it's tricky to explain. I dare not even try to give you specific examples of this today, but I do think principally a lesson can be learned here. The love of the people of Tyre should have been used to affirm Paul in his conviction here, but instead it tried to thwart it. Now that's unfortunate, but notice it did it unsuccessfully. Unsuccessfully. So point one, God's people and God's will. They gladly understand and leave Paul to get on his boat. Second point, it amps up a little bit. God's prophets and God's will. Verses seven through 11. Now we see in seven through nine, right? It's onward Christian soldier. There goes Paul marching on to Jerusalem, right? He really is uh, determined and, and wants to do God's will. And he's on with Luke and the gang and they do some port hopping, okay? Ptolemaeus and then Caesarea. Well, Caesarea is just 55 miles north and west of Jerusalem. It's a coastal city. So we're almost to Jerusalem, which is Paul's, uh, you know, what, what the Holy Spirit has told him to do. And we meet our boy Philip again. You guys remember this guy? Uh, You should. Luke banks on expositional preaching. I just want to point that out. Or at least expositional study, uh, you know, since it's a history. You know, he says one of the seven. Do you see that? Luke says, this is Philip, one of the seven. Well, unless you've read Acts 6, 5, you don't know what he's talking about. In Acts 6, 5, after Stephen, the next name was a man named Philip, chosen to serve the church. In Acts 8, Philip is a little bit more than just a, a good old serving deacon. He is also a preacher teacher. He's up in Samaria preaching. Dude gets teleported by the Holy Spirit to another place as best as, as we can understand that scripture. In that place, he meets uh, an Ethiopian, a eunuch of the, of the you know, co- uh, Queen Candace of Ethiopia. He's like a servant and, and he's reading Isaiah and like, Philip like baptizes and leads him to Jesus right there. Tells him to go plant churches in Ethiopia, I'm sure. And, and, and then settles eventually in Acts 8.40, we learn, uh, he settles in Caesarea. Now in our text, it's been 20 years, roughly, since that moment, okay? 20 years have gone by. And uh, we know this uh, is an old and dear friend of Paul. Uh, you know, this, so this is different than Tyre in a lot of ways. This is Philip, a well-known, uh, they called him the evangelist. The dude had uh, daughters since then, right? He's been, he's, been, he's been faithful, you know, fruitful and multiplying. He's got four girls. Uh, but man, they've, they've committed themselves to the Lord. Like they've committed themselves to God. They're prophetesses, uh, Just let you have fun with that in your study since it's not the thrust of this text. Um, But here's what we know. Uh, He stayed in that area, evidently had these daughters and, and, and he is committing himself to helping people find their way to Jesus and then to find their way in Caesarea to staying in God's will. And so this is again, another place for Paul to find a lot of help. The prophet, uh, Agabus comes down, but I want you to see, even though Luke tells us that these girls, these, these women are, are like Acts 2 said, that the spirit has been poured out on them, you know, in this time and they're prophesying, you know, they're, they're used by God in this way, uh, in, in the church, even though that's happening, Luke says nothing about what they say. He says nothing about it, right? He just says, while we were staying for many days, Uh, And there's no mention of them challenging Paul or Philip doing that. Instead, verse 10 picks up the rest of it. A prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Now, the prophet Agabus coming down from Judea, that sounds familiar to you if you've been paying attention in Acts. Because guess what? We've seen him before too. In Acts 11, 27, 28, he also came down. Remember, Jerusalem's on a hill, even though they're going north, right? We always think north is up, but it's actually downhill. And, uh, and, and he's come down in Acts 11, and he 
predicted a famine that would uh, hurt the church in Jerusalem. And guess who was there back in Acts 11 to hear this Agabus prophet uh, make this prediction accurately about, about Jerusalem? You guessed it, Paul. Paul's met Agabus before, okay? And in Antioch, he heard that he was indeed a prophet whose prediction had come, come true. Now, Luke records the details for us of his prediction here as a legit prophet of God. Now, I need to give a quick note here because the text has gotten really weird. <laughs> and if you're like, you're like stressing out, if you're any kind of, you know, like worried about spirit stuff, right? Uh, because you're like, what? Women, these women are, these daughters are prophets and this Agabus guy, what is going on? Well, listen, the best way I can explain this is this is the apostolic age of the church and many sign gifts are still happening and are still necessary as they are setting up the normal means of grace that are to be established for the church and its long witness that me and you are in right now, okay? And God is using these wonderful things to point to the greatest thing, his word, and knowing him in his word and experiencing it together with other believers. So as that's happening, stuff like this is happening. If you want to know more about that, if that doesn't, you know, if that doesn't help you, then just find me or Blake and we'd love to take you to coffee and talk about what are these spiritual gifts. Now, it's about Paul, though. This text is not about us talking about you know, prophecy and things like that. It's about Paul. That's what, this is what Luke wants us to see. You know, whether or not he is in God's will. Agabus' prophecy, did you hear it when the brother read it? I mean, it's like a one-act play with one character, right? And that may have seemed weird to you. I mean, here he is. Dude takes Paul's belt off of him. This is likely in a gathering situation. So everybody's watching and everybody's listening. And this prophet, respected prophet, grabs Paul's belt, likely the one he has money in, you know, a big one that he's taking with him. And, and he puts it around his, his, his arms and his feet somehow while, while declaring the message. I mean, he's using a word picture. I mean, we're about to like use these things as a picture, right? A symbol of what we believe. And he's trying to communicate via, you know, drama, right? Uh, that, that this, is, this is what's going to happen. Now, before you think that's way too weird, Old Testament prophets did stuff like this all the time. <laughs> I'll just give you a few. Uh, Isaiah walked around naked as a jaybird for three years uh, prophesying because God told him to do it, to get the message of God to Israel that they would be stripped bare, naked in judgment before the nations if they didn't repent. That's pretty crazy. <laughs> Jeremiah bound himself to tell the people of God the same message. Ahijah in 1 Kings, he tears his clothes into 12 pieces to tell the people of Israel to repent. And we know John the Baptist, don't we, in the New Testament? The last of the prophets of the Old Testament. What did John the Baptist do? Uh, he had a few things to do with clothes and antics, you know, the whole eating locusts and honey thing. Why, why is this happening? Well, because in, in, in the Old Testament and in the sense here, Agabus, uh, these were aids to kind of help us to understand what was going on. Now, look carefully at what Agabus says. Don't lose it in the midst of that chaos, which, by the way, like, this is not like a proof text to let people do drama in church. So if you think that, it's just don't do that. Okay, it's silly. But look what he says, because that's what the point of the, the antics are about. It's the same thing we've heard, isn't it? You see it? What's happening in the testimony of Agabus as he bounds himself and he says, thus says the Holy Spirit, Paul shouldn't go to Jerusalem? No, look what it says. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt, Paul, and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. In other words, Agabus is saying the exact same thing that the Holy Spirit has been saying since Acts 9, in Acts 19, in Acts 20, 
likely through the words of the people of Tyre, and now through Agabus. It does not come with a prohibition. It is simply a prediction. That is important. It is a prediction of what will happen. It is not a prohibition keeping him. And often, this is what God gives you and me and people who follow him. God will make very clear, this is the way, right? I set before you today this mountain of obedience, Moses. I set before you this mountain of disobedience. And will you choose one? Because I predict if you choose this one and you love sin more than me, you will be cursed. And I predict if you choose this one, love for me and obedience to my covenant, you will have blessing. And then what happens? People try to discern their will, their will, right? God's will for their life. And, and they want to submit themselves to it. That's what's happening here. God shows suffering servants for thousands of years in the Old Testament. Jesus shows up. He suffers and rises. Paul is now about, uh, you know, already in his uh, ministry, he's wrote about the suffering he would have. The Spirit's made it clear. And here is Agabus affirming, hey, believers need to know, Paul, you need to know that this is this is what's going to happen. You're going to have to suffer. Now, we don't know Agabus's personal opinion. It's not recorded. But it's probably safe to say that he is sympathetic to the people uh, that are interpreting and applying uh, to come in our final point. But I want you to see that this is possibly another thwart here for Paul. Paul could let this official kind of stamped prophet of the church of Jerusalem like be for him the way away from what he feels like God has called him to do. He, he could. He could choose that, right? He could say, you guys are right, and I've been, you know, not, not thinking, and he, could, and he could give up, and he could not go. But I want you to hear today, it's not what he does. This doesn't lead Paul to change his mind at all. So let's apply this to ourselves, if we can, before we move to the final thwart. I think it's easy application in knowing God's will in this. You don't need something crazy to ha happen to you to let you know what God's plan is. But man, we think that. And I don't mean we like church. I'm talking we. We in this room. All of us want a sign. We want to know. Paint it in the sky, God. What am I supposed to do? <laughs> and we are people that want to worship signs. Jesus shows up in the New Testament and the Pharisees come saying, we demand to see a sign from you. Before we follow you who you're saying you're leading us to God's will, we want to see a sign. Jesus said, cursed is a generation who looks for a sign. You know, you don't need God to have some man come to you, bind himself up and say, this is how your life's going to be, you know. You don't need these antics. You don't need these things. God made it very clear prior to this in the Old Testament. And Paul has been steeped in it. Paul has seen the rejection of the truth in Jerusalem over and over again as a Pharisee. God set that city up quickly to be a city of David, city of promise. And he sent servants to it, like Jesus told in his parable, right? That's my vineyard. I'm going to keep sending servants. And you know what they did? They stopped their ears. They didn't want to listen. They killed some of them. It's the city that kills prophets. And Paul, who loves Jesus, knows that he rode in on a donkey, not a warrior horse like he should have, but a donkey in this humility. And he goes and he submits himself to these people who would hate him, just like they rejected the prophets before. But he would go on and entrust himself to a father. And Paul knows that in that great city, the city that kills the prophets, they killed God. 
But God didn't stay dead. God rose and God reigns and God met Paul on the road to Damascus and Jesus blinded him so he would get silent for a while to go and hear what he had been missing in that revelation his whole life. And, 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 and the prophet Ananias shows up and says, Saul, receive this. Be baptized. Trust Christ. And so what does he do? He, by faith, is regenerate. He has a new heart. He's baptized. And the apostle Paul is born. Out of what? Out of an understanding that he was the stone thrower killing the prophets. He killed Jesus. But he won't do it anymore. And now, when God reveals to him at his conversion and on, that now he somehow gets to humbly walk the same road that his Savior did, set his course to a, a, God's will to give his whole life away if it were possible, and that it would be not for his namesake, but for God's glory, you best believe Paul's going to do it. So prophets with their antics be forgotten. <laughs> I must obey. I will not recant. I need to go. How often is our life bound to the word of God like this? Would you be thwarted if someone came and said, oh, you're trying to do that? Let me show you this cool thing about this element of Christianity or this thing that you can do or this study. Or that, you know, There's so many programs or other things that want to really promise the right thing and then not deliver, leaving you thinking, I thought I was pursuing God's will. When deep in your heart, there is this ache of the spirit convicting you if you're a believer saying, just find me in the word. Find me in the word. Spend time with me. Will you put your, uh, yourself before God? And, and, and if you are doing that, are you going to be you know, cast aside by some antic? Now, I, I'm guilty of this too. And I, I, I've reflected on past seasons as I put this sermon together. And for time's sake, I don't want to just go on and on about a story for myself. But I'll tell you, I grew up in the foolish faith of, of kind of uh, high school youth group culture. So for me, I, I truly, I feel like God converted me according to his grace when I was nine years old. But from nine to 18, I just didn't follow Christ in the word. I, I, I depended on these high and low emotional relationships with Jesus. Now I will say I was a part of a church taking me to wonderful camps. One of them was called Super Summer. I went to Super Summer from seventh grade until 12th grade. Super Summer was a camp, youth camp, still going on, I think, and their motto was, send us your best and we'll send them back better. It's pretty prideful. <laughs> what churches, churches shouldn't even be sending their youth to places to learn from whatever, right, what's going on? But that's what we did. And man, God was good and he worked in it. That's what's awesome. I mean, Agabus shows up and God's got a plan. Well, well listen, God's word showed up every week and I would be crushed with conviction. And I remember, I can tell you, and I'm not gonna go on and on, but I'm saying each year, I can remember crying and, and asking God by the end of the week, God, help me to overcome my addictions. God, help me to live for you. Help me to preach Jesus at my campus. And I would come back, I would fall headlong into sin. No accountability, no discipleship, no love for the word. I would struggle maybe two weeks later. Well, I got fed up with it one year. It's about my 11th grade year. I was, uh, we were having a night and all the young men were in the, in the dorm after. We're all talking about how we're going to go back to the, 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 you know, do great things for God and we're going to like preach Jesus on campus. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm watching these younger guys that, that I'm an 11th grader and these younger men and we're all talking and I'll never forget my buddy Mitchell. He was, he was saying some things about it and I was so excited for him. I, I mean, it was, it was earnest. But I jumped up being the leader and I stood up and I yelled at all of them and I said, y'all, this is all lies. The Bible's untrue. I just committed a bunch of blasphemies. I walked out, I slammed the door and I just stood there on the outside. And I listened to the silence on the other side. And then I opened the door and I went in and I told those guys, I said, 
I've seen a lot of nights like this. And I'm telling you, if what I just did, you know, got you, got you upset at all, you don't even know what's coming in two weeks. Now, that sounds awesome, right? That sounds awesome. Now, I tell you this story because God really worked through his word to convict us, sinful high schoolers, but yet we're trying to follow him. God, despite my goofiness, let somehow the, the, that be a good warning to them. I was, I was fed up and they were shocked and, you know, that was awesome in their eyes. But, you know, when I look back on this, here's what I think that situation actually did. It puffed me up, though I didn't mean it to, but it did. It puffed me up instead of giving glory to God. It actually was taking away from the main point that God would have probably been telling us. You see, there were probably, and I know there are, 25 different ways in the Bible that they could have gotten to the conclusion right, that God wants me to obey his commands and love Jesus and live a holy life in high school. And they could have, we all could have just opened our Bibles. Our parents could have sat down and taught us the word of God. The church could have came alongside us in those weeks to come and said, hey, look, I know it's not emotional right now. I know you don't, you don't understand it like you did two weeks ago, but will you persevere? Stay faithful. Are you in sin? Confess it. Repent, right? Those things didn't happen. I didn't pursue them. And what happened? I went to college thinking that I didn't even know God, truthfully. Now, enough about me. I tell you that because here's the Apostle Paul. Here's you. Here's me. Here's us trying to follow God's will for our life. And sometimes the story I just told you, that becomes the attractive element of our faith. And we're just holding on until we can hit that worship note again. Or we can have that quiet time. And we dismiss what we can learn at God's feet in the normal, everyday I am going to get up, pray. I'm going to seek brothers and sisters. I'm going to live for God according to his word. I'm going to gather regularly and I'm going to treat God's day, the Lord's day, like it's just something I, I need. And that's about it. <laughs> that's boring. You do that for 50 years somewhere? Raise some kids that love God and want to go and, 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 and you know, do things in the world? You yourself, like leverage everything you have and do it for 50 years and die and be forgotten? That's boring. That's Christianity. Paul says, I don't care if what waits for me in Jerusalem is imprisonment and death. I don't care because it's not about my name. It's not about me. So if you choose this, brother and sister, I, I would encourage you. God's people are good. That, sometimes they, they'll lead you off God's will. God's prophets, God, God's moments, we could say today, are good, but they could lead you off of God's will. And now our shortest point in closing. This one's tough. God-given partners in God's will. So far, it has been beloved saints at a distance, the people of Tyre. It's been a little bit closer church, the, the church there in Caesarea led by Philip and the others, sweet saints that Paul's met. So, you know, meeting some for, for the first time, meeting some old friends. But look at verse 12. Look at verse 12. When we heard this, what Agabus said, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. You see we there? Luke is indicating, along with the closest companions of Paul that are traveling with him, that they are the ones that also have gotten caught up in this thought that he's going to be hurt in Jerusalem. And they are urging, they are pleading, they are begging him not to go. They love him so much that to see Agabus bound and to then think that that's going to be their friend, chained before them, suffering like that, it was too much, right? It was too much. They plead with him, they beg him. I mean, look at the force behind the word urge there. They, they urged him not to go. It preaches itself. Look at the next verse, verse 13. Paul answered, what are you doing? 
weeping and breaking my heart? Now listen to these words, beloved, because this is, this is where you set your hope if you're trying to know God's will for your life. For I'm ready, Paul said, not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Through tears, Paul reveals that he is not impervious to the challenge. I love this. He isn't stubbornly holding on to some pride. He isn't seeking to make a name for himself. If he were, the tears wouldn't come. He would have dismissed these men and he would have said, no, you know, know, but he's not. Look, he's worn down by their love and care. This is really good. This is helpful. You know, he knows I should actually be being built up right now by these closest companions of mine, but I'm not. I'm being worn down. And yet he's submitted himself so much to them that rather than retort and say, no, I know it. God has revealed it. You need to come in line and submit with me. This is what we're doing. Instead of that, what does he do? He pushes into brotherly love. He softens. Why, why are you like rain? The idea is like beating out laundry until it's dry. Why are you weeping and breaking down my heart? Don't you know you're missing it? Paul's telling them. Boy, the tears come. The, the brothers understand. Brothers and sisters in Christ understand Paul. You can see here. He wants the name and the fame of Jesus to spread further. And even if they want to hold on to some agree to disagree type stuff, look how they do it. Verse 14, since he would not be persuaded. You hear that? So Luke's like, okay, he wouldn't be persuaded. (laughs) We ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Lord willing. Let the will of the Lord be done. I want to point out to you, this is not a cop out. Okay, this is not a cop out. This is not frustrated friends still thinking that they're right while Paul's wrong. And it may be agreed uh, to disagree a little, but this isn't a split. It's, it is mainly glad submission to let the Lord be in control. That's what this is. Let God be in control. 15 and 16, close down the chapter. Paul does make it to Jerusalem just outside of it in this man's house. But for now, brothers and sisters, here's what happens. In Caesarea, they lay down their opinions at the Lord's feet finally. Trusting God to accomplish his will in Paul's life. At this point, we can say, what more can they do? They will trust the Lord. They will trust the Lord. It's no secret that such conversations that we've had today are for the church. They're for the church. Everything I've told you today is for the church. They are for born again believers. I want to say this. If you're here today and you have not repented of your sins and you have not trusted Jesus Christ, then God's will for you is to hear the gospel. That's God's will for you today. Faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of God. And as you've heard the gospel preached and sang to you and is about to be demonstrated in the Lord's Supper, you need to understand that is the greatest authority that God has given to you today. And he's saying it is the power of the gospel that can save you. Okay, if you're not saved, be saved today. There are tons of us that want to talk to you about it. Me and Blake chiefly would love to do that. But the majority, though, this text is not dealing in salvation. You need to see that. That does not make it less important. Okay, God has a will and a way for your life, so seek it. And when you seek it, be like Paul. Find God's people. Find God's words of authority. For us, the scriptures, for him as well. Lean into trusted partners in the gospel, knowing God will make a way where there seems to be no way. He really will. And sometimes the the trusted ones you lean into, even they miss it. But if it is God's will, it will be known, and all will agree, let the Lord's will be done. And there will be peace.
But you got to have faith to get there. Let me finish where we started. Post-Reformation, so much has happened. Luther has set the world on fire. There's so much we could talk about that are Agabus-style, prophetic, crazy stuff going on in the 1500s. Later, as he reflects on what really was the agent that caused it, and I mean no offense that this quote includes beer, so know that, but here is the full quote, okay? I want you to hear. Luther, and when asked about what happened in the Reformation, he said this. People were saying he was great. Here's what he said. What is Luther? What is Luther? The teaching is not mine, nor was I crucified for anyone. How did I? A poor, stinking bag of maggots that I am come to the point where people call the children of Christ by my evil name. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends, the word of God so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon. I did nothing. The word of God did everything. Amen? Let's pray. God, give us resolve like Martin Luther. Give us resolve like Paul. Give us all the resolve of your own son, Jesus Christ. We know that ultimately as we reflect today in song and now in confession and soon in the Lord's Supper, the path that Jesus has paved, none of us can walk. We try and we fail. That is our confession. But you did it and you did not fail. And now, like Paul, we can set our eyes on you. We can set our eyes on his example. We can set our eyes, Jesus, on your will. And you have said that if we seek first the kingdom and, it's, uh, and all that it has first, Lord, that all will be added to us. So God, help us to let anxieties die and temptations to believe lies die, God. Help us to submit ourselves to your word, to you, to the church, and to each other, God as we seek to obey your will for our own lives. May our names decrease. May your name be great. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.